1: Welcome to SpyCast. My name is Dr. Andrew Hammond, historian and curator here at the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. Every week, SpyCast explores the world of intelligence and espionage by bringing you in-depth conversations with spies, spy masters, intelligence officers, and authors. We explore the stories, secrets, tradecraft, and technology of a world that looms beneath the surface of everyday life. I'm really pleased to get a chance to speak to you, James. For listeners that are just coming across you for the first time or those who've met you before but just need a refresher, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself and about your background?
2: Well, I'm actually an escaped felon, and uh, I'm (laughs) being sought by the FBI right now. No, actually.
1: I'm glad you said
2: it. Well, I, I just want to be upright and free and clear with everybody. No, I'm a former soldier. I was brought up in the middle of the country, the Great Plains, from the town of Omaha. I joined the Army fairly quickly after high school. I spent a year at the University of Nebraska, joined the Army, spent 23 years having a lot of fun, I should say. The best thing I've heard about the Army is its hours and hours of boredom punctuated by moments of sheer terror. And that can be true. My career was not as, I think, involved as some of the current soldiers who've had to do multiple tours in Afghanistan and Iraq. But my career was very interesting, and I spent a lot of time overseas, Africa, the Middle East, and Europe. And during that time, I also had occasion to work with the Central Intelligence Agency. And when I retired from the military, they invited me to join them. I spent a further about 13 years with the agency and retired. Not knowing what to do with myself, I decided I would try to tell some stories. And that's what I've been doing lately. I write, history, nonfiction. I've written four nonfiction books, and having had to deal with the Army's pre-publication review board, I decided I would try to write novels so they wouldn't have so much to pick through when they reviewed my stuff. So as you said, I just came out with my first novel, and hoping it's going to do well. It's part of a series. You mentioned it, Snake Eater's Chronicles. And that, in a nutshell, is who I am, what I'm about.
1: I guess it would be quite interesting for a lot of our listeners to know, what was it like to go from military culture to the CIA culture? What were some of the evident things that stood out? What were some of the similarities and what were some of the differences?
2: Similarities? I think probably the only similarity, unless you're working with a special activities division in the CIA, which is they're basically weaponized version of an intelligence officer the only similarities really i think is the dedication and the mindset of the people that are working there unlike the military which is very teamwork oriented very group oriented the agency is very much individual oriented because intelligence officers generally work alone when they're actually in the field when they're actually on operations Nine times out of 10, you're on your own. Whereas in the military, you've got a team. You've got a team in front of you. You've got a team behind you. And it's just more of a community than than the CIA. I had a discussion this weekend with one of my comrades from the Army, and he asked a similar question. And I told him, I do not miss my work with the CIA so much. I do not miss the people because I never formed lasting relationships like I did in the army.
1: So did you find that being on your own much more? Was that liberating or disconcerting or neither?
2: It can be disconcerting because you have to rely on yourself. And of course, you're always wondering, am I doing the right thing? Am I doing this the right way? And generally, you find out when you go back and talk to people that, They don't have a clue either. So (laughs) that's one thing. But liberating, yes. While I was in the military, I actually did some solo type operations, and I preferred those to working with a big team in the field. That said, I had better personal relationships with my team members than I did with my comrades in the CAA. I still fall back to it's a better relationship. It's a better experience when you have people to work with.
1: And just to clarify, you're talking about the director of operations, right?
2: That's correct. I think they call it the clandestine service now. I don't know why, but it was clandestine before. It's still clandestine. But director of operations are the actual intelligence officers that go out to find information and try to recruit spies.
1: Is there anything that's out there in the public domain that could illustrate the types of things you were up to in the CIA, the region you were in, or the time period, just like broad specifics?
2: Well, it was after the Cold War that I spent my time in the agency. So one of the key things that the CIA has been involved with while I was, I joined actually in 1998 was when I first started working for them. And within a year or two, really, the crux of the agency's operations went from collecting information from our biggest adversaries, the Russians, to starting to look at terrorism. I was in Africa when the two embassies were blown up, uh, the one in Nairobi and the one in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania. And then, of course, 2001 happened. And the focus of the agency changed radically and went from intelligence collection to defeating terrorism. And so that was a lot of what our work was about, to find the people who did these things and to try to prevent the next attack.
1: Tell us about some of your non-fiction books just before we go on to discuss a question of time. I know that some of the subject matter to me is absolutely fascinating. You look at Lawrence of Arabia, you look at the OSS. Tell our listeners a little bit more about the types of stories that you've been telling.
2: I I like to try to find stories that haven't been told before. (laughs) That's always
1: a good starting (laughs) point.
2: (laughs) Well, that's true. I don't want to be too boring. My first book was actually about uh, World War I in Southern Africa. Germany had four colonies in Africa, and one of them was Southwest Africa, which was right north of the British colony of South Africa. It actually had become a nation by then. The Republic of South Africa. And when World War I started, the British government asked the South African government to throw the Germans out of Southwest Africa, which they did. So my first book was about that uh, short campaign. It was a one year campaign, but it was actually one of the first parts of the war that's, I mean, it began really before the war in Europe really got kicked off. The second book was about my special forces unit which was special forces berlin which up until that point had been a classified unit it was deactivated in 1990 after the fall of the wall but nobody had really discussed it before and since the unit was deactivated i felt that i could write about it and so I decided to capture that history, the history of the unit, which existed from 1956 to 1990. And then, as you said, I wrote the book about Lawrence. It was about Lawrence, but more so it was about the people that he worked with, because he was one man that was actually working hand-in-glove with a lot of other British, Australian, even French and maybe one or two Americans in the desert of World War I. And I kind of saw Lawrence and his people as fighting the first modern British special operation. It was a combination of guerrilla warfare, aviation assets, mobile, fast-moving artillery, and armored cars. So that was a fascinating aspect to me. Most recently, uh, well, actually, it hasn't been put out yet, I wrote a book about the SOE and OSS, the parallels between the two organizations. SOE was, of course, the British Special Operations Executive, which was created, really, in about 1939. And then the OSS was the American organization that was created Mostly because we did not have any capability in that field, but also because the British encouraged us to do so. You know, those are my recent ones.
1: And the last book is called No Moon as Witness, right?
2: No Moon as Witness, yes.
1: I love the cover.
2: <laughs> uh, <laughs> I do too. That was inspired by an old recruiting poster that I remembered seeing. And I worked with the publisher and the publisher's uh, book cover artist uh, to come up with that one. So that was a lot of fun.
1: And on Lawrence of Arabia, having studied him, but also having been an intelligence officer and, and the Special Forces, how would you best describe him? He's kind of part diplomat, part intel guy, part special forces, where would you most like to have worked alongside him, in the military or in the CIA? I
2: don't think he would fit in either one of those. I, I don't think he fit well in either one of those. He, he also did not do well as a diplomat after the war. He was kind of a savant, but he was a brilliant, self-taught historian, military strategist. He was extremely well-read in in military history. And he basically put his operations together not following any military tradition. He just came up with it on his own. So he, he was quite a unique individual, I think.
1: I think in that aspect, he reminded me a bit of the Green Barrage where it's just extemporizing and just going off-piste as opposed to being big army.
2: Well-trained, but there's an operational Plan that I refer to often, and it's called a plan MSU, which means make stuff up.
1: <laughs>
2: he, I mean, he was knowledgeable, well trained, but he never let tradition or normal operations dictate to him how he should do things. If he saw a better way to do it, he just went off in that direction.
1: And one can only imagine how stuffy the British army was back then,
0: <laughs>
2: uh, uh, indeed. But there, there were people later Field Marshal, Allenby, who recognized that Lawrence was talented and let him run with it.
1: And tell us a little bit more about Special Forces Berlin. For listeners that haven't came across that unit before that you mentioned that you were a part of, just give us a, a pen portrait.
2: Well, the city of Berlin in Germany was an occupied territory throughout the Cold War. And the city was actually... Deep within the communist East Germany, the Allies had about 25,000 troops there. The French had a section of the city, the British had a section, and the Americans had a section. So the Allies had a 25,000 troops in, inside West Berlin. Inside East Berlin, that was the Soviet-controlled area, and they had Soviet troops in there. And then, of course, the city was surrounded by about one million Soviet and East German army troops. So some people looked at Berlin as either the world's largest POW camp about to happen or a good place to launch special operations against the Russians in case World War III came about. So our unit was part of the group that said this would be a great place to operate. So in 1956, the unit was created specifically for the anticipation that war would start, because Berlin sits basically at the crossroads of all the railways going from east to west, and we knew the Russians would have to move their troops through there. So what better place to put 100 guys with a whole bunch of explosives and weapons than right close to where the Russians would be running their trains? So we trained for that possibility that a war would come and we would fight the war behind their lines right there towards the end of the unit and during the time i was there the unit also got involved in counterterrorism because i think everyone will remember that in early 1970s or the 1980s that was a bad time in europe for terrorism the ira of course were hitting targets, British targets, inside Germany, as well as on the mainland and in Ireland. But there were German terrorists that did not like the Americans and Palestinians, so we started to prepare for that.
1: What years were you there? I'm trying to work out the timeline. Were you there during the 80s?
2: I was there during the 70s and the 80s. I spent a total of nine years there.
1: Wow. Were you there for the Mr. Gorbachev tear down this wall speech?
2: Actually, I was there. I was on the wall when that happened. Uh, <laughs> I, I heard it. So.
1: Okay, well wow. I,
2: I left shortly thereafter, 1989. And a friend of mine called me early one morning, like about 2 a.m., and said, turn on the TV. And it was the 9th of November, 1989, and the wall was coming down. The next day, I caught a pen and and I was in Berlin. So.
1: Oh, wow. Yeah. So that brings us on to A Question of Time. So your first novel, sketch out the idea behind the series, so The Snake Eater Chronicles. And I know that A Question of Time is set in Cold War, East Berlin. So how much of it is is a way to conveniently get around the, <laughs> the army censors and how much of it is fiction? Like, Give us a breakdown.
2: Well, I think one famous author, Thomas, said that fiction is basically a way for us to tell the truth. And many of the things in the book actually happen just under different circumstances. So I'm not going to say which is which, but it's based in truth, and then it goes from there. A lot of the stories that I would have liked to have put in the Special Forces of Berlin nonfiction history would not have made it through the censor. So I've always liked to tell stories, so I decided this would be a good way to try to get some of the information out. And the premise is that the CIA had an agent inside the East German government who suspects that he is under watch, that he has been compromised, and they have to get him out of East Germany. But the CIA station in eastern Berlin was very well covered by the East Germans. They knew who they were, and they did not really have a whole lot of people there. So to get this guy out, they call on a small special forces unit to help them out. People who are language qualified, who can cover themselves as civilians or act as civilians and have the ability to get into the country. So the story is how they get him out.
1: And tell us about some of the characters in the book. Who are the good guys and the bad guys and the backdrop?
2: Well, the primary good guys, as far as I'm concerned, is the agent himself. He's an East German who has decided that his country is not doing the right thing and decides to help out the Allies by providing information. He's been doing this for quite a while. He's kind of a loner, but he's also extremely intelligent and very aware of what's going on around him. His counterpart within the East German Security Service is another guy altogether. More of a Gestapo kind of policeman who has a lot of experience suppressing people, freedoms. Not a nice personality. He's the guy that is chasing our agent. And then across the wall, we've got some CIA people who are very helpful, but also need the assistance of our primary candidate in the book, our protagonist, I should say. And that's a guy by the name of Kim Becker, who he's a well-experienced, but also kind of skeptical Army sergeant who wonders... Whether or not it's worth it to go get this East German agent, whether or not it's worth it to risk himself, but more importantly, whether or not it's worth risking his own people. And eventually he decides yes, because he's given the mission, so he really doesn't have a whole lot of choice. But he puts together a team and they go in and actually get our agent out, I think. I forget. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to give away all the, uh, sure. all the endings, but
1: <laughs> So the character, Kim Becker, he's a Vietnam veteran, right? He is. Yeah, and I'm just trying to establish the timeline. When did you join the Army, James?
2: I joined at the very end of the Vietnam era, 1973. But the unit in Berlin was quite interesting because I served with a lot of, obviously, older guys. We had many Vietnam veterans and veterans of the Special Operations Group. In fact, Kim's experience was with the Special Operations Group. But we also had a lot of Europeans in the unit, people that had come to the United States and got their citizenship through the fact that they served with the military. Our commander was, and this is a true story, our commander was a Czech refugee, fought with the French resistance during World War II. Our Sergeant Major, was a German, left Germany at the end of the war when he was 14, but he had actually been part of the Hitler youth and was supposed to fight against the Americans until he realized which side of the war would be better and better to be on. And we had a number of other people. We had a Polish sailor who had jumped ship in Western Europe. We had a Hungarian who, was a fighter pilot that also decided it was better on the other side of the wall so a lot of interesting personalities
1: we'll be right back after this
0: the it world used to be simpler you only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled then came new technologies and new ways to work Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business.
1: And one of the things that I was interested in was... Was the unit that you were a part of and the Kim Becker is in in the novel, what relationship, if any, did they have with the United States military liaison mission and Bricksmiths? I just wondered if there was any relationship or crossover or if they just never the twin nip really met.
2: Not so much Bricksmiths, although we occasionally ran into them. But we had an ongoing exchange with the U.S. military liaison mission, and our people actually would go out with them as a U.S. MLM member. And those were the people who went into East Germany to monitor the Soviet forces and the East German forces. As part of an agreement that was set up in 1946, the Russians had a similar mission in West Germany, where they would have people going around the American, British, and French zones, basically to monitor what was going on. It was supposedly a peaceful organization that was there to monitor and prevent a recurrence of war, but both sides used it as a method to collect intelligence on each other.
1: That's really interesting, and help us understand the place <clears throat> of a question of time and the Snake Eater Chronicles. What are the Snake Eater Chronicles about, and, and what does this first installment do in the broader narrative art?
2: Well... The Snake Eater Chronicles. The name actually comes from a name that was given to Special Forces soldiers because in the 60s, we used to give demonstrations to VIPs and others, and part of the demonstration was survival. How do you survive out in the woods? One part of the demonstration, a sergeant held up a rattlesnake, cut off its head with a knife, and then proceeded to show the VIP visitors how to prepare the rattlesnake to eat. And after that, we became known as the snake eaters. So that's where that comes from. And, I mean, Special Forces were involved in pretty much and still are, uh, every part of the world. So one small unit was put forward into Berlin during the Cold War.
1: Just to break that down, the Special Forces, we're talking about Green Berets, right? Or what people more commonly know of as Green Berets?
2: That's correct. What Special Forces is in the UK is basically your entire gamut of Special Boat Service, SAS, the Royal Marine Commandos. Whereas in the United States, it's one specific unit, the Army Special Forces, who wear the Green Berets which we stole from Lord Lovett's commandos <laughs> in World War II.
1: The Green Berets, they are set up so that there's geographical regions. And help listeners that aren't familiar with the, the Green Berets understand the setup. It's geographic units. There's people that learn the languages. There's a particular remit that special forces have, but the unit that you were with in Berlin was part of that larger mission, right?
2: Very much so. The special forces, the basic unit is a 12 man team, which can be broken down into three, four man teams or four, three man teams with specialists uh, who know demolitions, weapons, radio communications, of course. We have our medics. But each unit is oriented towards a specific area and therefore culturally and socially trained to work in those areas, and of course, part of that is learning the language, learning how people act in those parts of the world. It's a force multiplication unit, basically to go into an area and to be able to link up with partisan forces or resistance forces and train them for operations. Theoretically, a 12 man team is set up to train and organize a battalion of underground fighters or guerrilla fighters.
1: That's really fascinating. Trying to frame the question so that you don't give too much away, what's the entry point for the next book? Or is it difficult to give us that without giving away spoilers?
2: Well, as you mentioned, a question of time is... Cold War oriented, uh, we're in Berlin and East Germany, and the time frame is about 1978-1979. Your listeners may or may not remember that in 1979, the American embassy in Tehran, Iran, was overrun, and 50-some American diplomats were taken hostage. Special Forces Berlin actually took part in the attempted rescue of those hostages in 1980. So historically, my unit was actually there. So in the book, The Snake Eater Chronicles, the second one, which is called An Appointment in Tehran, I describe what may or may not have been a part of that mission which was to get some very specific people and some very specific equipment out of the country before it was captured, either by the Iranians or the Russians.
1: How much of a pivot did you have to make to turn from nonfiction to fiction? Did you have to go to the library and get (laughs) out how to author your first novel book, or was was it easy to pivot, or was it a little bit more of a process?
2: It was a process. I mean, I had to learn how to specifically set up a novel and write it. But I have always been, even in my nonfiction, I try to tell narrative history more, not so much the relation, relating of facts and figures and dates. So I've always been interested in narrative history, the telling of a story, so converting What was nonfiction to fiction was not that difficult for me. Uh, something I've always been interested in and uh, have been trying. I had some help. Obviously, my editors with Casemate Publications were very accommodating. In fact, this is the first fiction book that Casemate has done. They're starting to turn from pure military history to being able to put out fiction as well. So it was a trip. And a a learning experience, but uh, it's one that I enjoy a lot.
1: And is it something that you see yourself doing a little bit of both moving forward? Are are there other nonfiction books on the horizon? Are you now a novelist and you're not sure if you're going to go back?
2: I am going to go back. Uh, Snake Eater Chronicles is going to be probably at least four, maybe five. Who knows? But at the same time, I'm looking for... Nonfiction histories to tell. I'm right now doing research on some of the operations that SOE ran in Africa. Some very little minimally researched and minimally known operations that the British uh, were involved with. I'm thinking very much that I would like to tell that story as history, of course. So we shall see.
1: And we've heard a little bit about the antagonist, Kim Becker, and the protagonist in your novel runs up against. When you were in Cold War Berlin, can you tell us about some of the antagonists that you ran up against? I don't know, Spetsnaz, KGB. What was your day-to-day like?
2: The day-to-day life was, let's put it this way, interesting. I don't think we had so many very personal encounters with our antagonists. We had run-ins with them. Berlin was very much a city that was in the focal point of the security services of a number of nations, the Russians, the East Germans, obviously, the Americans, British, and French, but there were a lot of other countries there that were running espionage operations. So on a day-to-day basis, you might actually run into some of these operations on the street, or you might be running into a criminal operation too, because there was a lot of criminal operations going on, smuggling back and forth of everything from genes that were highly prized in Russia and East Germany, or people also trying to bring people out from East Germany into West Berlin. I had several occasions where I either witnessed or I'm not going to say took part in, but ran across operations that were happening in West Berlin. Uh, Stuck on a meeting going on. The only way I knew that it was a meeting was the fact that there was a person who was clandestinely photographing the site with a briefcase. And I noticed the briefcase before I noticed the man. And then through what he was doing, I noticed the meeting that was going on. So very strange things happening all the time. We spent a lot of time looking for proper places to cross the wall in the event of war. And occasionally we had run-ins with the East German guards on the border. A number of our people were shot at You won't see reports of that anywhere because it was never reported. There were just a number of interesting things happening all the time. Interesting, of course, with quotes around it. (laughs) Depends on your perspective at the time.
1: (laughs) And did you want to keep going back there because you spent quite a lot of time there? or, Or was that just really something that came along with being in the particular Special Forces unit that you were a part of?
2: Be honest, I enjoyed it there. There was a certain feeling of working in West Berlin. I mean, it was a city that was surrounded by Russians and East Germans, but it was almost like being in a giant zoo. (laughs) I don't know. A lot of very interesting ambiance. If you read Le Carré, you get some of that feeling, some of that ambiance. Frederick Forsyth, the same way. And I enjoyed it. There were some people that didn't like it at all, but you had to be a volunteer to stay, if you did not want to, they did not keep you.
1: And you mentioned Le Carre and Frederick Forsyth. There Were there particular inspirations or novels that you try to model your own novel upon, or, or were you just doing your own thing?
2: Well, the one thing I found out is that it's extremely difficult to copy another author. I always end up with my own voice. For one thing, Le Carre can go on for pages about very small things. And I do not have that ability. Uh, I mean, he he can go through a description of a bedroom that will take him five pages. My description would take probably half a paragraph. But I don't want to emulate anyone. I want to have my own voice. And I try to tell my story, not so much as a crash-bang thriller, sort of like Carey. His are very quiet novels. Forsyth is a bit more exciting. I don't want to emulate their writing, but I don't want to have a story that's all about killing people and all about action. I want to tap the background behind how things happen, try to bring in the characters and their motivation, and very much teamwork, how it requires a team to do anything. It's never just one guy out there, Rambo-esque, I guess. But anyway, that's what I'm aiming for.
1: There's probably some SpyCast listeners out there that have great personal stories, or maybe they can think of some great stories that they would like to cash out. What advice would you give to them if there's one of them out there that wants to write a novel or that's thinking of converting their own life experience into something either novelistic or nonfiction?
2: Well, the first thing they have to do is start writing. (laughs) Start writing your story, outline the book put the words to paper, get somebody else to read it to help you out. I rely on a number of what I call beta readers, one of whom is my wife, who, although she's very interested in foreign relations and international affairs, she's not so much interested in the military aspects. So she reads things and then gives me feedback on how the story can be better told. And any writer needs that, because sometimes... What you're thinking is very clear to you, but it will need more elaboration, more detail to be clear to others. So that other reader is very important. Don't worry about the grammar. Somebody else will fix it if you're that bad, but get the paper out and start writing.
1: <laughs> and did you have a process? where you a certain amount of words per day or, or just as the inspiration came or... How do you go about your craft?
2: I start out very early in the morning. Well, not so early, but early in the morning. And I try to write for about four or five hours. And invariably, I will hit a wall when I get tired of writing. Some days, I will not have any inspiration at all. And I have found sometimes it's a good thing to skip over sections and write other chapters, other bits and then go in and fill out the other stuff in the meantime. There's no real word count that I go for every day, although uh, I do like to make progress, so I do monitor what I'm writing. <laughs> you know, I figure if I get 700,000 words down on paper, I'm doing pretty well. I might go back and rewrite 500 of those, but <laughs> you know, it, it's a way to do things. Thinking about timeline, Thinking about how a story goes together, your characters have to be built out, your not too much technical detail, all those kind of things play into it. But as I said, the first thing you have to do is get up in the morning and or evening and start writing.
1: One of the things that's interesting about your story is <clears> that you have <throat> metamorphosized a few times in the course of your life. You went from being a soldier to being an intelligence officer in the CIA, to becoming an author. How do you do that metamorphosis? Because a lot of people (laughs) struggle to go from one thing to another. How did you manage to adapt and change? Or is that just very special forces?
2: It might be, because I've seen people in special forces go on to do all kinds of weird things. I just kind of follow what is interesting to me. Archaeology for a while was interesting. It still is. And then I look back and say, okay, T.E. Lawrence, uh, Lawrence of Arabia, started out as sort of a historian, became an archaeologist. His archaeology led him to the Middle East. His experience in the Middle East led him to being recruited as a map maker, and then as an intelligence officer, special operations kind of person in the war. His experience led him to be a diplomat. And then he went on to other things like repairing speedboats for the Royal Navy or (laughs) things like that. I think it's just following your interests. And if you follow your interests, then you're going to be able to be satisfied with what you're doing.
1: Africa has came up a couple of times in our conversation with T. Lawrence and North Africa, the Middle East, and, and you were talking about Southwest Africa, I think it was. Is that modern day Namibia?
2: Yes, it is.
1: Okay. Yeah. And you mentioned that you had you were there when the bombings took place as well in ninety-eight. Yeah, is Africa a region of the world that you're also really interested in?
2: It is. It is. When I was in the army, I first visited Africa, I think nineteen eighty-five. Part of a survey team that went to Zimbabwe and Zambia, a couple other places. I was there again with the army in nineteen 1990- ninety Three, 1992, 1993, with the U.N. operations there. I met my wife in Africa in 1991, who she would become my wife later on. She was a diplomat, a foreign service officer. She went back to Africa after I got out of the Army, and I tagged along with her at the same moment when I was asked by the CIA to work for them. So I worked for the CIA in Africa amongst other places. And we we lived in six different countries in Africa. I think I spent a total of about 12 years in Africa. And it's a place, I mean, it's a huge place. It's culturally diverse. Each one of the countries I served in was different from the other and I very much enjoyed that. So Africa Became part of my life as well. I I find it much more interesting than the Middle East, quite frankly.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's really fascinating. What countries in Africa?
2: Zaire, which is now the Congo, Rwanda, Tanzania, Madagascar, Ivory Coast, Liberia, Namibia. I guess that's seven countries.
1: (laughs) Wow. And that's all over? That's the south that's like way over to the east that's way over to the west?
2: Yeah, quite a bit. And then I spent some short periods of time in in other countries, uh, Niger, Mauritania, Sudan.
1: (laughs) And for our listeners that don't have the background that you do, it just struck me that given that you were in the special forces for quite some time and then you were in the CIA for quite some time, do you ever find yourself now, you're writing your books, you're being an author, and do you ever think to yourself, I could raise some serious mischief with the training that I've had. Do you ever, are you ever tempted just to use some of the the old skills just to like break the week up or anything? Or
2: well, I would never admit to that (laughs) in a a public forum. (laughs) I'm just being playful,
1: of course.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I will say though that when I went to work for the agency, I was brought in to work as a traditional case officer, what they call operations officer. And some of my friends who were in the military went to work with what's called special activities, which is basically the military arm of the CIA. And many of them came up to me and said, you were in special forces, why don't you come work special activities? Because we're the ones that get to carry guns and do all kinds of strange stuff. And I said, I spent 23 years in the army doing that kind of stuff. I'd kind of like to move on to something else. (laughs) That's sort of how I feel now. I enjoy writing about it and thinking about it and talking to my old comrades about it, but I'm not going to be a mercenary unless I get a really good offer.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I'll keep an eye out for the news in Alexandria if there's any any craziness <laughs> yeah. that goes on. I know what's happening. <laughs> I think I've touched most of the things that I wanted to touch upon except the links between intelligence and special forces. Help us bite into that a little bit more. So we've got the OSS, and then from there we've got the CIA, special forces, covert ops, and it's something you've written about and it's something that you've been a part of both worlds give us some of your wisdom on that kind of relationship over time or where you see it now
2: well i'm not sure i have a whole lot of wisdom to share what i will say is special forces is very heavily involved in intelligence work not so much on the strategic level like the cia but more on the tactical and operational level and that's because they work generally far out, far away, or behind the lines, the enemy aligns, and they have to know what kind of a situation they are in to survive. So that nexus between intelligence, knowing what's going on, and being able to work militarily was extremely important in my career. And so it was kind of an easy step over to get into the CIA. One of the things that we did in the Army in Special Forces was to be the first ones into an area, basically the pilot team. And if the American military was coming in, our role was to prepare the battlefield. In other words, to tell our people what they were going to expect when they got there. And that's the same kind of thing that the agency does. But on the strategic or the political level, they're looking to find out what the enemy is thinking, what the enemy is planning in order to prepare our diplomats and our government for what's going to happen in the future. One thing that's not very well known about the CIA is they also spend time doing things like looking at food and water, because those are the critical aspects of the situation in many places. In the Middle East, for example, uh, Turkey, Syria, Iraq, all rely on water from the Tigris and Euphrates River. So the CIA spends a lot of time just trying to monitor that and to figure out what is going to happen strategically. They get their information from all over, out of the newspaper. They get it from NGOs who write reports. But then they put it together to form a picture that can be looked at by our politicians and diplomats to know what's going to happen next. What's going on on the Nile River, for example? That's another one. Uh, The competition between Ethiopia, Uganda, and Egypt over the Nile, over the, the sources of the water, and whether or not they're going to get closed down by a dam, those are all important things. How a drought affects the food supply for a nation, because what's that lead to is massive immigration, and that has consequences for our country. So those are things that our politicians are going to look at. Covert operations, I've got mixed feelings about because those are the kinds of things that the government approves and the CIA carries out to affect the course of an antagonist nation's how they do things. Might be something like sabotaging centrifuges in a country that's trying to produce a nuclear weapon. It might be trying to affect a political election. Some of those things, I think, have very nebulous results and can, in some cases, be very negative for the United States if we undertake them. So I have mixed feelings about those. Some of them are good. Some of them work. We don't hear about those. But the bad ones, we always hear about (laughs)
1: And when you were speaking there, it struck me that there's almost an anthropological component to being in the special forces and maybe even being an operations officer as well in the CIA. In the sense that you're trying to get a sense of cultural rhythms, codes, you're looking for points of leverage, points of entry, the configuration of power or how to woo someone, I guess. Yeah, I don't know. Any thoughts?
2: That's very much, it's a good observation, and it's very true, both with the agency and and special forces. You try to know who you're working with. Lawrence, Lawrence of Arabia, wrote a very recent article, which I I think it's called the 27 Articles, and it's his thoughts on working with a foreign nation, with indigenous troops. And it's very much along the lines of what you're talking about. You have to know the people that you work with, in order to work with them well. You have to know their language, you have to know their culture, you have to know that you can't pat their children on their heads or whatever. There's one good story that I can tell about one of our American commando forces, and he is asked what language he speaks or if he speaks that specific language. And he goes, Why would I want to know that language? I'm not going to talk to them. I'm going to kill them. That is just the opposite of what Special Forces tries to do. We try to know the people. We try to be able to anticipate how they're going to react to things, know what they want, know what they like, and use that to be able to multiply our effect in a country.
1: I was thinking as well, when you were talking there, it reminds me of this thing that I read once and it was about Native American chiefs that were part Scottish. And the gist of the paper was that quite often Scots would be the, yeah, I don't want to abuse the analogy, but they would almost be like the special forces. They would be the people that would go in and be able to understand and communicate and connect with the Native American peoples. And I think the argument was that they could do this because many of them came from a clan structure in the highlands where it was all, it was analogous to Native American communities. So they were almost like the tip of the anthropological spear, if you want to put it like that. But anyway, I think that that's quite interesting. I digress a little bit, but I find it quite interesting.
2: Which may explain why like, quite a few of your successful SAS and SBS operators come from Scotland.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it could, it may well be. Well, I think we've done a pretty good job digging into a bit of your story and about a question of time and, and how this relates to some of your other work. Is there any ingredient that I should have been cooking with that I haven't uh, put in the skillet yet? <laughs>
2: I think we have a good Denver omelet that's got just about everything in there, so (laughs) (laughs) um, I can't think of much. Like I said, I've tried in my writing, I have tried to use my life experience to both in the nonfiction and the fiction. So to tell a story that I hope people will want to read.
1: Thanks so much for your time, James.
2: Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to talk with you.